listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. Oh God, I pray that these truths that we've been singing, that we would behold you today. Behold you, take moments this morning as we've been already worshiping and then as we are in your word to see your love, to see your greatness, to see how vast and unmeasurable is your wisdom, your power, your sovereignty over all things. And God, we just even confess that this past week there were many things in our lives, many worries, concerns, bitterness, resentments, things that have distracted us away from who you are and what you desire to do. God, we confess that so oftentimes our eyes are so fixed on the here and the now and the things of this world and we get so caught up in these things and we don't take time to behold you and to see and to view from your word and then we look at creation and we look at, 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 at others and, and, and we see how you are working in their lives and we see, oh, that's the power of God. May even today as we look to your word and we see how you worked in and through the life of one of your servants and how you desire to then move and work in our lives here today, but it's going to take intentional decisions. And God, I pray that we would courage up, we would take the steps necessary that you call each one of us to take in response to your word even today. And so God, would you be pleased with what takes place here in, our, in the words that come out of my lips, but also to what is then received into the ears and into the heart of your people here today. And would you restore and revive and make these, even these days, some of the good years, some of the good days, knowing that the best day is yet to come. The best day is when we will be with you forever and ever. But until then, you do desire, whether we are in the pit or whether we are in the palace, oh God, you desire for us to have good days. And so God, would you work in and through your word by your spirit in our lives here today. And all God's people said, amen. And let's get to it. Open your Bibles. Genesis 45, Genesis 45. And ushers are coming forward. They have Bibles um, that if you do not have one, they would love to give you a copy to borrow. Or if you don't have a Bible at home, for you to take that Bible home and to use that to allow God's Word to uh, work in your life as you read it and as you then desire to apply God's Word. If you're joining us from home, make sure that you too have a copy of God's Word in your hands and, um, and, and follow along as we'll be looking at some verses here in Genesis 45. Now, there are some events in our lives that are frozen-in-time events, we could call them. Certain events and things that take place where it just seems the clock stops. A distinct memory gets branded into our minds and we know the exact place we were when we think about those times and and whether that would be life-changing in a good way or earth-shattering news that takes place. Perhaps some of you, being a little older, you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news that JFK had been shot. That was in 1963. Or when Challenger space shuttle exploded in 1986. 
you remember seeing and hearing that. Or, or perhaps it was when the news started to emerge on that long weekend in September in 1997 that Princess Diana died in a car accident. Or we remember, uh, more of us, it's coming into a more modern era, I guess you could say, uh, some of you at least would remember 9-11 and, and where you were and, and when those news reports started to emerge in 2001. And even then, even more, even locally, in 2003, the Okanagan wildfire. I remember watching uh, on the news, living in Alberta as Kelowna area, uh, that, that whole area uh, in Okanagan Mountain, that wildfire was taking place. I'm thinking, who would live? I mean, and, and, and so much mercy, right? I'm just saying, well, who would live in those areas anyways? That, you know, like, what do they expect, you know? <laughs> Ten years later, we buy a house right in that area, and, uh, and, and yet you, you remember seeing the images in the news, and then there's some of the good moments that get frozen in time, like, like that engagement proposal, or the birth of a child, or that news that you got the job, and just so excited, and just so thrilled about that, or, or, or maybe it was that time and place you remember so distinctly of your team winning the championship. Sorry, Canuck fans. You've never had that, have you? Uh, sorry, just had to get that in there. A few images, even from last Sunday, uh, will be frozen and locked in my mind for a little while. And, and this one, I just love this one, is the confetti bombs are going off, and you can see some of the smoke from the fireworks, and people cheering. And it wasn't just that all of this extra was going on. It was celebrating together the victory over sin and death of Jesus Christ and how his victory becomes our victory and what an amazing celebration and just I love this one picture that uh, that someone took and got sa- that I've saved it in my phone and made it a favorite but then this too seeing some of our teens our young teens teaching and being a part of helping to care for our our children in Hope Nursery and then this other one that we have of some of our teenagers helping to reenact for the group of kids that were up here. And that's just so awesome. And, and, and those are, are great moments and good moments. But then sadly, there can also be other moments that can be locked and frozen in time in our life. Whether that is the diagnosis, the phone call of the death of a loved one, earth-shattering, earth-life-changing words and news that we get, or perhaps frozen in time, are some of those hurtful, cutting words that someone said to you. And that tape continues to play over and over and over that day, that night of that awful fight. Well, we come to chapter 45, and we have an incredible frozen in time moment for Joseph and his 11 brothers. There had been in Joseph's Joseph's past in the last 22 years, some terrible, some awful frozen in time moments for Joseph and for his brothers, for their father Jacob. But this one, this is going to be a good one that we're going to get to today. This is a good news one. This is a frozen in time moment of ah, amazing of what took place. And we see those words in verse 3. Take a look even right there where all of a sudden Joseph makes that declaration. Three words, I am Joseph. An incredible, glorious moment etched into their lives where all of a sudden everything changed. And written here now for all time, we have it in the Word of God, this frozen in time, this special moment. And I believe that these kind of special frozen in time moments, 
these God moments can be etched into our minds and into our lives. And I've been praying that there would be much in a similar way that would come out of God's Word here to us today. Now, just a little recap to catch you up on this whole story, in case you're not 100% familiar with the Joseph story that we've been in now. I think this is week number six. Joseph grew up in a very large and a very dysfunctional home. He had 11 brothers, one sister, and, and four mothers. All at the same time, these mothers were a part of it, not like, you know, one after the other, all at the same time. This home, this home was a mess. It was filled with favoritism, jealousy, hatred. The brothers conspired to kill Joseph because they couldn't stand him because of his coat and his dreams and because in their dad's eyes he could do nothing wrong. And, and, and so they stripped him when opportunity arose and they threw him into a pit. Instead of killing him, at first they were going to kill him. They thought, well, let's sell him. Let's make some money off him. So they sold him as a slave that went into Egypt. Then in Egypt, he rose to power and prominence and trust in Potiphar's house, a high-ranking Egyptian officer. But then Mrs. Potiphar also had her eyes on him and wanted to have sex with him. And when he refused her advances, she accused him of rape and was thrown into the dungeon. He was forgotten in prison by people who said he would, or by a person who said he would remember. And after a number of years of being forgotten, Pharaoh, the emperor, the king of Egypt, has these disturbing dreams. And God enabled Joseph to interpret those dreams. And he told Pharaoh of seven years of plenty and seven years of severe famine that would follow. And so Joseph was promoted to second in command in all of Egypt. In basically, And Egypt was the superpower in the world in that day. And he was given the responsibility to oversee the storage of food and grain for the, in the years of plenty and then the dispersion in the years of famine. Jacob then sends, in the second year of the famine, sends his ten sons to Egypt to go buy grain. Joseph sees his brothers. They don't recognize him. Time had changed a lot, as well as the Egyptian gear and the language that he would have been speaking. And so Joseph is shocked when he sees his brothers. And, and we're told in previous chapters that he, he, he was in shock and he weeps. But then he put his brothers through a series of tests to test him, or test them. This wasn't for revenge. This wasn't to try to get back at them for what they had done. This was simply to see, had these guys changed? How, was their heart, how were their hearts? Were they treating their youngest brother, Benjamin, who wasn't part of the, uh, of the trip to Egypt? Did they get rid of him as well? What happened? Wh where were their hearts? Would they end up sacrificing Benjamin to save their own skin now, th these many years later? And so, as time went on in the previous chapters, Joseph became convinced that a transformation had taken place in, in, in the brother's life. That they, he even overheard them with guilt, feeling the regret of what they did to their brother 22 years earlier. And truly, they were sorry for what they had done. And so now in chapter 45, we come to this moment forever frozen in time. He sends all the Egyptian servants, he sends them all out of the room. And it's just Joseph now and his brothers, and they still have no clue that it's him. 
And as they leave the room, he starts to wail and he starts to cry. And these brothers are looking, what's wrong with this guy? What's going on? They're, they're, and, and the servants are on the other side of the door. They're alarmed, like, what's going on? What's happening to Joseph? He can't even talk. And finally, he blurts out these words, as we've already seen in verse 3, I am Joseph. And the brothers are in complete shock. They're speechless. They don't have anything to say. And then look at verse 4 along with me. And it says, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What a reunion. Forgiveness, reconciliation, healing. What a reunion is taking place here. And this sweet reunion took place, it happened because some intentional decisions were made by the one who had been offended, by the one who had been betrayed, abused, and abandoned. Joseph made certain decisions and commitments that allowed him and now his family to experience God and the good life. And, and, and yet, this wasn't the start of the good life for Joseph because even Joseph, as we have gone through this series, we see whether he was in the pit, in the penthouse, in the prison, in the palace, and now today, we see that he was making intentional decisions that allowed him to experience God and to experience good even in the midst of hardship and trial. But we see this sweet reunion that takes place. And, and, and loved ones, I believe so much so much that God desires through our intentional decisions with His help and His strength and His grace for us to experience the good life, the God-centered life in a God-honoring way in our relationships even today. It was interesting, just on my way here this morning, my parents called me and, and I chatted with them and, and, and they said, hey, we're praying for you. And I'm like, thank you, thank you, appreciate that so much. And, and then my dad said, what are you preaching? And I said, we're back to Joseph. We're looking at Joseph. And my dad just made one, he, he made one comment. And he said, that Joseph had to do a lot of dying, didn't he? And I'm like, just close the book. That's the sermon right there. He had to do a lot of dying. A lot of dying to his plans, his agenda, his dreams, his understanding of how life should go. And we're going to see even today, there had to be some dying that took place and some intentional decisions that were very difficult in order for this incredible frozen-in-time reunion, in order for God to be experienced and for His brothers to be reunited. And I pray that for us today, that for all of us, and, and that starting today and in the near future, because of intentional decisions and commitments that are being made today as a result of God's Word, that we will experience and see and be a part of similar reunions to what we see here in Genesis 45. It is possible. Because let's face it, there's a lot of separation in relationships. There's a lot of division in marriages, in families, in God's family, within the church of Jesus Christ, within our church, within workplaces and neighborhoods. In places, in all of these places, there is great hurt that has taken place, great offense. Some sinful and hurtful things have happened in your life, in relationships. And I pray that today would be a day of healing, 
of great healing and restoration that will lead to some incredible sweet reunions. However, this will require two, as we'll see here in this passage, two intentional decisions and commitments that will be that need to be made on your behalf, on my behalf, in order for us to experience God and the good life that he has for us even today. And the first intentional decision is trusting in the providence of God. I encourage you to write that down. Trusting in God's providential care and oversight of our lives. Look at it in verse 5. And we see it so clearly here. This is so beautiful in the next number of verses. And, and, and there's, there's some real key words to underline. I'm going to emphasize them. You can underline them if it is your Bible. Uh, feel free to do that. And, and, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruled over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is telling his brothers very, very clearly, this wasn't your doing. It wasn't you that ultimately sent me here. God sent me here ahead of you. Now, they could not evade personal responsibility for what they did. This did not allow them or give them reason to justify, oh, it's not a big deal how we roughed you up and treated you and everything because God was in it. No, that's not what he's getting at and this isn't what, what God's word is about. They sinned. They had evil intention. They meant evil. They meant harm. They hated him. But Joseph's response, because he put his trust in the providential hands of God, was much larger than what was going on down here because he was able to see God for who he was and something more in this. And he's basically saying, my coming to Egypt is more God's work than your work. And so Joseph saw and understood God's providence, even in the jealous hatred, in the caravan that took him to Egypt. He saw God's providence in, even in the lust and the false accusations and the anger that landed him in the prison for those number of years. It was God's providence that he understood that allowed him to interpret the strange dreams that Pharaoh had. That wasn't his ability, that was God's. It was God's providence that, it, that, that, that changed the worldwide weather patterns, bringing seven years of incredible plenty, followed by seven years of hardship and famine. It was God's providence that elevated him to the second command in Egypt. And all of these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God, who is Lord of all. All this being done in order to fulfill the counsel of God's will. Oh, there's great mystery in all of this, what I've just said and reason for many theological debates and discussions. 
And again, please hear me. This does not justify sin. Poison is still poison, even though the elements in poison, there are certain elements in poison that can be used as medicine for healing. So, so, so we have to be so, so careful of that. Sin is still sin, even though God may choose and does choose to use that sin for which human beings are responsible for, which human beings meant for evil, for selfish ambition, for their own lust, for their own gratitude. And yet God uses that even in the unfolding of His plan. God can use anything. No matter how much we've messed up our life. I, I, this morning I was just thinking of the, the woodworker in the woodworking shop. And he has his grandson or has his son come in there and, and gives him a piece of wood and sets him to work. And that kid starts to go to work and chisel and hammer and cut and do all of these different things. And, and it's just, it's an absolute mess what he did. And, 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 and he, the, the grandfather looks at this and, 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 and can you know, like, what do you do with this? And yet... This loving grandfather takes and he takes that wood and he takes and he forms it and cuts it and sands it and he chisels it even into something beautiful. And God can take the messes and the destruction and the things that we have just botched up or that others have botched up and he can bring and make something so beautiful from it. And God uses his own freedom to bring about good out of the things that are evil in this world. And God can and He does work through the destruction and the evil. He works in and through the illness and the disease and even the death of a loved one to serve His purpose. And later in this series, we will come to that great statement in Genesis chapter 50 that just puts a big exclamation mark on all of this. What was meant for evil, God meant it for good, even the salvation of many souls. Please understand this, and what I'm saying here though, this does not mean for a second that we accept ill treatment or abuse, whether that be physical, emotional, or verbal, that you need help. You need to have people around you. You may have to get out of a situation. This does not allow a person to unnecessarily and sinfully sin against you. The abuser, the adulterer, whoever it is, needs help. And so do you in dealing with what you are going through. And so this doesn't mean that we just live under it, but we do trust God through it. Especially where there is abuse. There's never any grounds for that kind of thing. Oh, we need to be reminded of God's sovereignty over all things and His providential steps in our lives. And where do we do this? How do we see this? How do we get a glimpse of God's providence and His sovereignty and His control over all things? We need to go to the Word of God. And so many passages, so many verses. Take, take for example, Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand God's ways? That, that, that God is in all things and over all things. Take and read Isaiah 40. I don't know if we'll put that up on the screen. That was my mistake on there. I gave them Isaiah 45, uh, but it should be Isaiah 40. So just, just notch that one out, put in Isaiah 40. 
and read that chapter. And that chapter just comes alive in some amazing ways in in, in seeing God's providence. In verse 10, it declares that the Lord rules with might and with power. But verse 11, but he will tend his flock like a loving, caring shepherd gently leading. You get to verse 15, and it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. I mean, think about that. Okay, the nations are like, like a drop in the bucket. So this thing is full of water. It's completely full. And, and here, oh, there's China. Oh, there's Canada, half drop. There's United States. Oh, not much there. No, no, it's just, I mean, it, oh, that was India because there's a billion people there. You know, they, they get a double drop. But, but I mean, this is, I mean, God's word says that, that the nations are just like a drop. And this isn't making light of human beings or anything like this, but in the vastness of understanding who God is, the things that are going on in our world and the things we are so embroiled up over, like that, in a big bucket, but not a bucket, in an ocean of water. Our God is greater. And then, and then you get to verse 25. Isaiah says, well, verse 15, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Verse 25, you've got to read this this week. It's so, so far. He says, look at the stars. Look at them. Get out there and look at the stars on a starry night. I call them all by name. Our God, this is how vast and huge and amazing he is. He calls every star. Oh, Milky Way estimated over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And how many galaxies do they believe there are? Millions of them. Oh, and I happen to number every one of these stars by name. And then Jesus declares in Matthew 10 about his wonderful heavenly Father who not only knows the names of every star, he also knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He also knows how many hairs are on our heads. For some of you, you've made it a really easy job for him. And others of you, not so much. He knows with greatness, the greatness and the vastness of this universe. And yet he knows and he cares for us as his children, as his sheep, as a loving shepherd. You see, long before Joseph would embrace his brothers, he had embraced God's providence. He embraced that God was in control, and he chose through the pit, through the prison, through the palace, and here in this reunion that he has, I'm going to choose God, I'm going to choose, and I'm going to trust God's plan, no matter if life is good or whether life stinks. I'm going to trust God's plan. And so must we. Even right now, Today, regardless of what you are facing, regardless of what is going on in our world, choose to trust, choose and declare, God, you are sovereign. God, you are mighty over all. And and, and before God, submit. I submit to you, God, my past, my present, and the unknown future. I give it all to you because you are over all things. The God who numbers the stars, numbers my days, knows everything about me, knows my finances... He knows my hopes and my dreams. God, I give it to you because you are also that loving, caring shepherd. 
And so, God, I give to you the good and the blessing as well as the big and the bad and the ugly of my life, knowing that you can take the worst and bring about the best, and that one day in heaven, I will experience your ultimate best. And right now, though, God, I don't see it, I don't believe it, and I'm having a hard time trusting. Give that all to him and even tell him that. I don't even know how to do this. But God, with just even a little dropper of faith, God, I desire to trust you today. Put it there. Put your hands and your head and your heart and your life and your family and your finances and your health and in the future, put it all in God's hands. Do that today. That's what somewhere early on in Joseph being sold as a slave, being roughed, and roughed up by his brothers, he put his faith and his trust and his confidence there. And so must we. This then leads us to the second intentional decision and the last one that we have here today, and it's an important one. And when we understand God's providence, it opens the door and helps us to see and to understand this second one of pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation. As Joseph and his brothers unite, and there's no hint of anger in the room. There's shock. There's emotion, there's tears, and as they are reuniting, there's no bitterness. And said, look at verse 9, he says, hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. And he's like, bring the whole family, bring them all down, bring all of them, bring your children, the grandchildren, bring the herds, the flocks, come on, let's go. You're going to have some land right beside me. We're going to have barbecue. We're going to have a wonderful time because there's five more years of famine and you're not going to make it there, but you're going to survive and you're going to live really well here. So hurry up, come on, got to get moving. And then look at verse 14. He, this is so sweet. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all, all, not, not some, all his brothers, and he wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. I wonder how many families, parents, grandparents, would long to see this happen in their own families. That kind of forgiveness... I believe it starts with the family of God. It's not going to happen out there. It needs to happen in the family of God. You know, this beautiful, beautiful picture took place centuries before Jesus would give the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, who later declared, love your enemies and forgive those who have sinned against you. This was written long before Paul would write, be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in Romans chapter 12 that we are to overcome evil with good. And, and, and he goes on to say, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Joseph was living this kingdom principle as one of God's key principles in his life. And we ought to do the same. 
The brothers, they tore Joseph's coat off of him. What did Joseph do? He gave them clothing. He gave them coats. His brothers sold him for money. What did he do? He gave them money. They stripped him of all his provisions, and he gave them an unlimited supply. They slapped him, and they roughed him up, and they reviled him, and Joseph embraced them, and he kissed them. The brothers pushed him far away, and Joseph says, come close to me. You see, early on, Joseph, again, as he had been sold into slavery, not only, not only chose to trust in the providential hand of God, he also chose the forgiving life. He chose that he was going to forgive. But you know, for us today, I think I'm in good company, but I would be the first one to say, these statements are some of the hardest statements to say that are on the screen right now. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Is it easy for anyone to just pop those out of your mouth and to mean them sincerely? No, are you kidding me? I'm not even going to give you an opportunity to lie because you're in church and you shouldn't lie anytime, but especially not in church. And, and, and to be able to say this with no buts. I'm sorry, but. I was wrong, but. No, that, that's qualifying the whole thing. Please forgive me. I forgive you. And to mean it from the heart. That last one, I forgive you, was huge in Joseph's life as he chose to forgive his brothers. Long before this reunion started, long before he saw their faces there in the crowd to buy grain, he already was working on the pathway of forgiveness. But we struggle in this, don't we? The inability for us to receive and to extend forgiveness or to say it and to really mean it and to not bring it up again. You see, it's our pride that keeps us so oftentimes from admitting wrong, to keep these words at bay so we don't say them. And if we do, we don't really mean it. We choose to hold the offense oftentimes as a form of leverage or a justifiable action or reaction because of what they did or what they didn't do. Unforgiveness and its fruit is the cause for so much ruin in our society. A person's mental, physical, emotional health can all be affected by unforgiveness that leads to addictions and the, or else even the drive to succeed or the drive to rebel in, in various forms. And, and so much, I believe, is society, family, workplace, school, the ruin that happens in friendship comes down to an inability to forgive. John Stott, the old pastor, said this, Forgiveness is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. We're not starving ourselves physically, that I can see. But we're starving ourselves when it comes to God's blessing and God's power, God's forgiveness in our life. Yet this place, the people of God, gathered here, watching online, listening later on this week to the podcast... It is with the people of God where we ought to be the most loving and forgiving people here on earth. And yet it's oftentimes with this group of people, with you people there online, 
that we can struggle with unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, and somehow justify it before God and before others. Whether you've been in church for a few weeks or for decades, there is a huge danger that we can just simply come here and, and, become a form, and, and this can simply become a form of moralism or externalism or religiosity where we just are kind of going through the motions. We attend church, we attend a group midweek, we read our Bibles, we sing the songs, we serve, we give money, we articulate the gospel, we can articulate and, and have discussions on doctrine, we can pray some really good prayers and, that are super help, heartfelt and, 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 and we you know, are, are um, able to, to come alongside and mentor and help people. We, we hear then messages and, and, and talks and sermons about being nicer, about being kinder, about not lusting and not coveting or gossiping. And, on, and we learn from God's word how to be a good parent, a good spouse, a good employee, to not be resentful, to for, that we ought to forgive. And we hear this and we hear this day after day, week after week, year after week, year after year. And yet day by day, we fall flat on our faces in failure, not making much progress. And we're left with this empty, dead feeling hoping that one day, if I just do the right thing, maybe long enough, things will start to take on the inside. There's this emptiness, there's this void still in the center, in my heart. And so we look for emotional highs, and so we run to places where we'll get an emotional high. We might check out other churches, we might look at this teaching or hear from this group or gather together in this way, because it might be able to supply me with just something more. And oftentimes it comes down to some spirituality, but it's based in emotionalism and not in truth. Yet so many of our struggles and our emptiness can be traced to an improper understanding of living out biblical forgiveness. Forgiveness is more than just a good idea and something we should get around to. It's more than just doing the right thing. It's not just an extra in the Christian life. It is at the heart of the Christian life. It is at the heart of the gospel. And so we need to think biblically, and here's some, some ways that we ought to think biblically. I encourage you to write this down. First of all, we must understand to think biblically about forgiveness, that we must understand we have all sinned. We have all sinned against God. We've all missed the mark. It's an even playing field. We have all fallen short before God. Just read the Ten Commandments. You're not going to get very far. Ah, failure. Miss the mark. And you won't get very far in life without being hurt or hurting others. Second of all, our debt is unpayable. We are all God's debtors. There is not enough works. There's not enough good things that you and I can do to, to be able to repay the debt that we owe. It's kind of like the Canadian economy right now. I mean, we are in such debt. And, and I heard recently, and I can't remember the exact number, but we are all, everyone, we are sitting with this burden of debt and so are so many of the other countries, it seems, in our world. But we're sitting with this burden of debt, and there's no way we're ever going to get out of it the way things are going. And so in the same way, we have this unpayable debt of sin that there's nothing we can do. But then we understand, but, but there is a way. Number three, that Christ paid our debt in full. Because of the cross, at the cross, Christ's atoning sacrifice paid that debt. That's why last weekend was a big deal. Someone has paid that debt. They went and not just co-signed the loan. They wiped it out. They got rid of it. They, it was paid 
by Jesus Christ for us. That debt was paid. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, took our sin. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And on Easter Sunday then, His victory became our victory. That is the gospel. And we must not only love it and accept it and believe it and trust it unreservedly, we must, number four, this is so important, number four is so important, this is where we miss it, we must declare our bankruptcy and receive God's forgiveness. We must come to that point of saying before God, and this, is, and this concerns me because I believe in many of the little salvation prayers that we pray, whether we are 5 or 15 or 55, that, that, that we just kind of saw that as a nice little tra- trans- transaction in our lives, a nice little add-on to make sure we don't go to hell. And so we pray the prayer and we do this and we bring Jesus in as our forever friend. No, at salvation... At that moment, we must come and declare, I am a wretched sinner. I have a debt of sin on me that I cannot pay. And then it is that declaration, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, or I die. And receive freely that payment made in full, knowing there is nothing in my hand I bring to enable that to happen. And it's only when we understand and declare our poverty, our bankruptcy before God, we have to go sign the papers in a sense to declare our bankruptcy before the new life can begin. And once we do that and we make that declaration, we sign in a sense on the dotted line, I am wretched, I am sinner, I'm a bankrupt, we are then positioned to receive God's grace and God's forgiveness freely into our lives it flows. This is the only way our incalculable debt can be paid. And when we do this, he writes across our account, paid in full. This morning, when my prayer partner sent this verse, listen to this, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he skimpily gave to us. No, that he lavished. I love you so much. And he, and he lavished this grace upon us. Loved ones today, have you declared your absolute bankruptcy before God? Don't be dependent on that prayer that you prayed and just think, and you've never examined that commitment that you've made to Jesus Christ. Have you come to that point where you have just unreservedly lavished and fallen upon his grace and his mercy, declaring your bankruptcy. Jesus Christ, the righteous, pays our debt in full. If you have not come to this point, you still may be dead in your sins, and that's why it just seems it never takes. It's nothing more than some emotionalism and some good deeds, and you're hoping that it takes. And if you've prayed that prayer, and you have done that in your heart, we then move into the area on that basis, number five, on the basis of God's forgiveness, we now can forgive others. There is all of a sudden, the channel is open for us to be able to forgive because we have been forgiven much. We now not only have out of gratitude and out of love, but there's also the power from the Holy Spirit to enable us to be able to forgive others from the heart. I've been forgiven an unpayable debt before God. And so out of love, out of gratitude, I now forgive other. 
forgive others. I seek to move towards them, not wait for them to come to me, but I seek towards them in restoration and reconciliation. You see, forgiveness is not just skin deep. It's heart-changing. It's a heart-changing experience, first of all, before God, and then as we move towards one another. A stunning story in Matthew 18. I encourage you to write down that passage. Read that this week. Of a man who had been forgiven an impossible debt that was upon him. And he was forgiven that debt that was, that was unpayable. But then he went out and found a guy, a buddy, a work associate that owed him a few bucks. And he took and he strangled him. And, 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 and he went after him and, and said, pay me now. And things did not end well for that unforgiving servant because he showed that he did not truly understand forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, listen, this is so serious. Forgiven people forgive. That's who we are. If we've been forgiven by Christ, we are going to forgive others. Unforgiving people reveal that quite possibly they are unforgiven themselves. Read Psalm 130. It reminds us, oh Lord, if you would have kept just a record of our own sin against us, no one would be able to stand. And yet we hold on to the offenses and the records of those against us in our lives. And we must understand, if I'm unforgiving towards those around me, if I refuse to forgive, if I'm holding on to that hurt, that bitterness, I may be revealing in my own heart that I am unforgiven by God that I haven't come to that place where the debt has been paid. And so out of love and out of gratitude, the child of God forgives. We, we move towards forgiveness. We initiate that in our own heart. Even though Joseph had no idea if or how he would ever see his brothers again, he was prepared for that moment because he had already decided in his heart, I choose to forgive. There'll be some guidelines in the, um, the study this week that will be helpful, I believe, uh, when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation and, 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 and what do we do? Secret sin? Uh, if it's secret sin, how do we confess that? If it's public, uh, that kind of thing. There, there's some to wrestle around and work through with that, but God and, and, and His Word will give insight to us as well. But step number one, I choose to forgive. Commit to the process. And that process will take time, but that process does not mean, well, Step one for me, I'll think about forgiving. Or step one, I'll forgive them when I'm good and ready. Step two, I'm not good and ready yet. Step three, I'm not good and ready yet. No, step one is deciding here, now I choose to forgive. God help me. And we forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. We start the process. And I love this invitation I love this invitation that Joseph makes to his brothers in verse 4. Come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. Come close. Come close, you broken, messed up brothers. Come close, you undeserving ones who did all of these things. You know what? This is a picture of Jesus, the greater Joseph, who says, come near to me, please. Come near to me and see that I've already forgiven you. Come near to me and see that I desire to lavish blessing upon you, but you're not going to have it. You're not going to get it if you stay far. Come near. Come and weep. Come and weep over him or with him and allow his tears to wet your shoulders. 
Come and find forgiveness. Come find life. Come find provision. Come find blessings. It's ours. If we draw near, let's bow our heads and the band is going to come up.